When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up. Hi everyone, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but um, I realised this weekend, well, my suspicions were confirmed, that I am a terrible guest. <laughs> I went to stay with some friends who I, who I love very much and know quite well, but maybe not well enough to behave the way that I did. And I got there in time for lunch and we had lunch and then they said, let's go for a lovely walk. And I said, no, I will not be going for a walk. <laughs> I didn't say, do you mind if I don't? I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going for a walk. I'm going to go to bed. And they said, oh, well, that's fine. And so I went to bed at three and I thought, I'll just have a little snooze and I'll go down and it would be marvellous to make up the fact that I've just refused to go for a walk. And I, and I fell asleep and I opened my eyes at 18.57. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. such a shock. And I leapt out of bed and I ran downstairs and said, I'm so sorry. And then I got drunk. And then I went back to bed and then the next morning I left. And that was sort of, that was the, the sum total. And I would do it all over again. <laughs> no regrets. Not really. Je regret Ria. How are you? <laughs> well, I'm Emily. I'm absolutely fine. But regular listeners to the podcast will know that I've had this stupid BPV, which is like a sort of vertigo. And the vertigo itself is lingering. And I basically feel like I'm spinning quite a lot of the time and and I'm so tired because I'm basically trying to stay on the earth. It's like I'm vibrating. And if I just didn't concentrate for a second, I might just literally fall off. Ooh, what would happen if you just let go? And let go. And I had this thought. And then I thought, no, 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 I must fight to stay on. What would happen if you just let go? Interesting question considering today's guest. Well, I do think it does. So listen, buckle in, guys. This message landed in our inbox. A former chief employee of Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop Empire and titan of the wellness industry has written a daring, provocative manifesto and what it means for women to be good and what happens when we stop. And we knew that we had to ask her on the podcast. And amazingly, she said yes. I know, can you believe it? I know, I can't. What's she thinking? I don't know, she's great. Maybe <laughs> she has spun off the earth. And she's let go. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, she's here with us today. Elise Lunen has written on our best behaviour, what happens when we stop trying to be good? And it's about the way women have been caged by fake morality, how we feel that if we are obedient, we will be protected. And she asks, are we denying ourselves a full existence for fear of crossing some line? It is a fascinating, overwhelming read, and we are delighted to have her on the podcast today. Elise, how are you? Hi, I'm absolutely fine, but I did wake up very, very early. I'm in LA to take my six-year-old 
to a Tuesday birthday party at Universal Studios, and I realized that we were out of coffee. And so I was like digging through the hall closet, (laughs) finding anything. I found something that's clearly very old, (laughs) but it will do. Is it actually coffee? Unclear, unclear. Those, those, those moments of desperation. I remember, do you remember like late at night in your 20s, you sort of hit the cooking sherry? Whatever you could find in the back of your mum's cupboard. You're sort of 19 and desperate. It's 4.30 in the morning. Yes, exactly. Oh, look at this ouzo that came from Greece oh. somewhat ages ago, years ago. Let's just yes. drink that. Like literally flammable. Yeah. Maybe it was like actually cleaning equipment. I mean, you know, who knows? I um, cut school once my freshman year with some older friends and we drank we found a bottle of ouzo and i remember when it was reported to my parents that we were we tried to call ourselves in and were busted and my mom was like ouzo really like that's what you're gonna go down on (laughs) ouzo's the hill you're gonna die on was it worth it yeah no no it was not worth it it was not worth it is the coffee working or the i'm inverted commas coffee working Please. I mean, unclear. We'll see. We'll see how the hour unfolds. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, one of the things I enjoyed most about your book, On Our Best Behaviour, and Emily and I both really, really loved it. It felt like a call to arms. And it felt like there was, I mean, barely disguised anger in it. You yeah. know, you had a lot to fucking say. Why did you decide to say it here and to say it now? Mm. Thank you for noting the anger. I am only recently acknowledging. It's funny because the order, so for people listening, it's not immediately clear what the superstructure of the book is, but it is, I wrote the book according to The Seven Deadly Sins. I grew up in a secular household. I had heard of the sins, but I didn't really even remember fully what they were until I looked at them and realized that they had completely infiltrated culture and our consciousness, regardless of what we believe. And as I was writing it, the order of the sins kept moving, shifting around as I was trying to like feel my way into the book. And originally, anger. So the sins are, let me just, sloth, pride, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, anger, And there was originally an eighth, sadness, which I included in the book, but anger was sort of in the middle of the book. And then I realized as I wrote it and as I was revising it, I was like, no, I'm actually furious. And my hope as people read this book is that their anger is mounting as they start to recognize all of the things that have been programmed into us to ensure that we behave. And so I knew I had to end it with anger and then sadness. I included Mm. sadness because Mm. often anger can be a secondary emotion to grief, fear, and shame. But I feel like the grief is is palpable. And it's interesting. I've only in the last, as I've started writing this book, gotten in touch with my own anger and I'm willing to sort of talk about it. And I also did not want to write a book that would leave women – sort of with our pulses racing and no idea. I've certainly read a lot of books like that where I'm just like, this. I'm pissed, you know, when you read books about sexual assault and how it's never actually ever taken to trial. Like there's so many enraging, justifiably enraging books in the culture. But I wanted to sort of try to not only write an anthem but move it so that people could start to metabolize all of this and have some sense 
it's different for every single woman, clearly, but some sense of where to go and how to figure out what's happening in our bodies. I can't solve your vertigo, though, but maybe. <laughs> well, maybe my vertigo is to do with my unexpressed anger. I mean, it's entirely yes. possible. With you, it is entirely possible. I, I mean, actually, just thinking about it, I'm thinking, I feel like I'm not an angry person, but everybody is mm. angry and should be allowed to act. So maybe this is part of my endless repression. Well, we'll yes. find out, won't we? But so, you know, we start reading the book and then, you know, you make it clear to us that the seven deadly sins really are about control. Mm-hmm. and ways to control us. And I think you say that, you know, as women, if we can just excise all our human impulses, then we'll be safe. Yeah. If not divine, hopefully divine, but at yeah. least safe. Um, yes. And so it's a way to keep us, you know, hungry and ashamed and to pitch us against each other. And, you know, and all this stuff is still in play. You know, look, you, you, it's very erudite. So you've got a lot of references that, you know, biblical or predating that. Mm-hmm. But, but really, it's, it, it's, it's horribly still in play, all of this, isn't it? Yes, it's completely in play. And we live in this culture, whether we're conscious of it or not, that's based on this ascension myth, particularly for women. It's that women are sort of the source of depravity. We cause the fall. And now it's our job to sublimate the body and all of its appetites to sort of clamber our way back up to prove our worthiness. And again, it's like you don't have to actually believe that in order for it to have purchase in your mind that the body is base, that wanting things is wrong. You know, as women, we're fed this culture of selflessness and nurturance and care. We're told that this is our nature rather than understanding it as culture informing our nature and the rules that we're supposed to play. And and you mentioned, too, that perhaps the most insidious and painful part of this is that we dislocate from our own bodies. Many of us have no idea what we want, what our bodies want, what our souls want, how we want to show up in the world. For many of us, this has never been modeled by our own mothers and our grandmothers. And so not only can we not recognize it, but we recognize it in other women and then we slap it out of them. Yeah. So I think we can, we've all observed this, that sort of rising discomfort when we see another woman doing something or being something that we would never allow ourselves to be. Mm-hmm. And the instinct is, I don't like her. Or sort of this character assassination that is completely socially extinctioned. We're all used to this. Rather than actually saying, what is it that she's doing that's bothering me? And recognizing that most likely she's pushing on a dream that you have for yourself. Mm-hmm. This is that you've got that wonderful idea in the book. I think it's in the sloth chapter, yes. sloth chapter about expanders. Yeah. And that would be a way, wouldn't it, of, of doing precisely the opposite of what you've just said. Yes. Yeah. So this is this woman here in California, and she's, you know, totally wonderfully woo-woo, really smart. And she has this manifestation company, but it's not just sort of like put a yacht on a board and pray to it and exercise <laughs> all negative thoughts from your mind. And um, that is not her business. She works with the neuroscientist. And the idea is deep work to identify all of your limiting self-conscious beliefs, everything in you that says, I can't have that because maybe you grew up 
without any resources or you've never seen anyone achieve the thing that you want for yourself. So you have all these mental blocks. So her program is designed to sort of take you deep into yourself, reparenting, like all the things so you can actually get in touch with that deep, deep wanting. And part of the process is simple and yet revolutionary, which is to go out into the world and you can use your envy as a way of doing this of like, who's bothering me? Like, for example, I have no envy of Taylor Swift or any sort of public woman like that. I don't want to be an actress. I don't have I don't hold any of these dreams for myself. What singers do doesn't bother me. But you go out in the world and you start looking for like, who is really bugging you Mm. and why? And again, I want to separate this and say sometimes, at least particularly here in the States, there are a lot of women that bother us because they are <laughs> behaving in cruel and horrible and inhumane in, in insane ways in politics, for example. So this isn't about condoning or assuming that every woman has information for you, but you, you'll you know the difference if you do the work. <laughs> well, but I mean, Lacey I think talks- you say, I think you talk about it, you know, if, you, if, you, if, you, if it's not just, you know, loathing, if maybe if it's envy. Um, yes. Then then there was a quote by Nietzsche in your book where mm-hmm. you said, envy and jealousy are the private parts of the human soul. And you say, instead of denying envy, we need to let it be our compass. Yes. Let it land on those tender spots that point us towards the fulfillment of desire. So if someone's pissing you off because you're jealous, it might tell yes. you what you want. Exactly. And then you use them. So in Lacey's whole concept, these are called expanders. You don't have to want everything about someone's life. They can, you might just want their career or their family or whatever it may be, but you use them. You study them, you watch them, you understand what it is. And it's, it's a process of training yourself to say, huh, if she can do that, I can do that too. Mm. And if she has that, I can have that as well. And it's a much more powerful <laughs> way of moving through the world looking for signs, looking for that internal map, then to shut yourself down and shut other women down as well. Well, of course, because yes, exactly. Otherwise, you're just negating your own desires, which is obviously something that we haven't even said the P word, have we yet so far, but the patriarchy, yeah. which is obviously yes. the, the founding fathers of the structure that we're talking about. Who have but, convinced uh, us that wanting is in itself humiliating. Because, yes. you know, we're conditioned to believe, as you say, that selfishness is bad and immoral and wrong. And that we must serve. Yes. Must serve. Must must subjugate all of our wants to other people's needs. This Mm. is so, so deep in us. Mm. And it's why as we sort of crash into each other in the culture, people applaud because we're, you know, we're we're holding up a status quo. And and we're doing the patriarchy's work for them, which is, you know, which is the thing that, I mean, I, I was really interested in the way that you filter it all the way through you know, our DNA, and we would, it, you have a chapter talking about the sort of witch trials and the way that you mm-hmm. single women out and the sort of the society, the cultural time, singled women out and said, and they accused them and that was the... You break their guilty. cultural connection, you turn gossip into a terrible thing rather than what it yes. was originally, it was a sort of connector and it was about wisdom. And you make women frightened of each other. And it's exactly. interesting that you talk about that still being very much in play 500 years later, 600 years later. Yeah, you're right. 500 years later, particularly for all of you in Europe, because, you know, the Salem witch trials still have the imagination of Americans captured. And I think like Mm. 30 people died, Mm. maybe. 
And the witch craze in Europe went on for centuries, and yes. they don't know exactly how many. They're still figuring it out. But the the best guess is somewhere between eighty to one hundred thousand people, primarily women, primarily older women, keepers of wisdom. And as you said, you know, it was an act of self preservation often to turn in your friends, to turn in your daughter, to turn in your mother. Mm-hmm. When we think we're sort of now cracking into this idea of intergenerational trauma and pain. And we certainly haven't fully processed or metabolized what that meant and that dramatic shift from sort of this like horizontal, everyone doing life together, affiliative, subsistence style way of being to this patriarchal fear the other, she will denounce and kill you mentality, Mm -hmm. which I do think is still part of our consciousness. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now, you guys know that we're not shy about getting things off our chest. The tiny inconveniences that can ruin our days to the big, overwhelming worries that can flood our nights. Trouble is, we all got into the habit of saying, I'm absolutely fine. Emily and I added the but specifically to get off autopilot and give ourselves the space to say what we were really experiencing. But we weren't always so free with our inner furies. A few years ago, I began experiencing debilitating panic attacks because I felt I couldn't tell anyone all the things that I was feeling, that I was not coping, that I felt like a failure. I was so ashamed, so I kept it all bottled inside. And of course, it started leaking out. It was only when I found a therapist and began sharing those doubts and insecurities with her that the panic began to dissipate. Because therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash midult. That's better. H-E-L-P dot com slash midult. Better help, because sometimes the best thing to do is acknowledge that we are not, in fact, absolutely fine. Yeah, no. And you think about all the knowledge and all the sort of, you know, emotional capability that's lost. Because if, if someone gives you a feeling, whether it's anger, rage, you know, joy, whatever, but you then say that person gave me a feeling, therefore they are bad. Yes. You then at the same time suppress all your own ability to connect with your feelings too, right? Because you don't want to feel yes. that way. So it's just like a... So much easier for men to just assume that women are the, you know, the root of all human depravity. Well, that too as well. Yes. So yeah. That's convenient. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it is convenient. And then you think about too... The primary targets of the witch hunts, and they they touched all ages, children as well, but primarily it was also our older women, our healers, midwives, the women who would initiate other women, and women who were often independent. That was what made them a primary target. They might be a widow. They might actually sort of have or have property that could then be disinherited and taken um, Mm -hmm. as part of this. And you see this whole gender side happen. And we're still terrified. You know, the witch, the witch was the witch because of the cauldron and the broom. Those were the symbols of the housewife. Mm. And you think about how that still persists in our culture and the lack of older women 
who we revere and, you know, men, these patrician men, we are like, they're our judges, our professors, and we're still suspicious of older women. And the extraordinary thing was, wasn't it, and I think this is still really true, is to be accused was enough. Mm-hmm. To be accused, you know, you typically if it was seen through with the witches famously, you know, if you if you drowned, you were innocent. And if you floated and survived, then you got burnt. Mm-hmm. So after someone had pointed a finger and anybody randomly could do that, any man who looked at you and thought you were hot or not hot enough. And so much of it must have been about, you know, men's twisted desire, um, you yeah. know, apart from money and power. It was enough to just go, I don't like her. Mm. burnt at the stake Mm. yeah it's completely wild i mean and again we don't fully know and there were certain zones of europe where it was most most insane and other parts where it didn't seem to permeate as much but you can just imagine how that would move through a culture and how that fear would reverberate yeah in the minds of women i mean it's it's wild i i feel it even thinking about it and here we are centuries later. I agree. And I, and I feel like there's been so many moves like that, haven't there? I, something about the kind of relentless drive of capitalism means that we are all separated from a group, from a socialist, from a kind of thriving village vibe, right? Where we can all hang together and everybody looks after everybody else and looks after the children. And we instead it's like, you must have your separate homes, your separate spaces, you must keep... And as a result, we're all screwed by that, right? Because, yes. you know, if we work... Who looks after our children? You know, childcare is so expensive. I mean, I'm sure it's an issue in America as it is in, in the UK, but all of this stuff, we no longer have community is no longer important because we've been told that we need to crave, these are the things that we need to shape our, ourselves. But also, our if there is community, if we talk about its handling of women, it immediately makes me think, sorry, Elise, about informants and about what's happening with abortion in America mm. and oh, how yeah. our people are being sweetened with the idea that if they tell on their neighbours, they get, what is it, $10,000? It must be a very strange place for a woman like you to live right now. It's bizarre, but it's also what makes it wild is that rights vary so dramatically from state to state. And so you can also, I'm in California, and it feels very removed in some ways from what's happening, you know, in Florida or Texas or, and it's, it's also wild because the way that our government works is not necessarily as representative as we would like it to be, you know? And we're seeing, at this point, long work, extreme conservative parties to move in on local elections and local courts, and now they're sort of putting their grand plan in action. It's pretty wild. And to see how they have been scheming for decades, 50 years, for this moment in time that is so opposite to what Americans want. So it's not like Texans on the whole are anti-choice, you know? Mm. We're it's also, something like you, 73% of Americans yeah. are pro-choice. Are they, someone said pro-choice. to me that the problem with America is it isn't a country. It's a series of, sort of enormous territories that are just stitched together. Yes. So it can't yeah. operate healthily, to your point. And then you have all a lot of people who would who would have formally professed to be pro-life, quote unquote, because of the moral choice of more of a personal, I would never have an abortion, I don't really understand anyone who can, who never thought that this right would be stripped from women. 
And now you hear a lot of sort of formerly pro-life women being like, well, this is not what we wanted (laughs) at all. So it's wild. And we're being held hostage by guns. And I have to hope, and I mean, this sounds more perverse, but this I do think is happening, is that we are being pushed to the edge so that we can evolve and get bigger and grow into this next stage. You know, in a lot of ways, I think Trump was an unconscious martyr who was giving this country a deep, deep facial and (laughs) showing us, you know, everything we didn't want to see and that was present in the country. And now it is ugly and exposed and scarring, but an opportunity, I think, for us to, and we're, we're doing a lot of this work to heal. It's just strange. It's strange. And it's funny because I think in 2015, many of us were complacent and thought, of course, it would be Hillary. Mm-hmm. And I had always, you know, I always had my, that was one of the reasons I wrote the book was I knew unfortunately, that we would not have a female president because women cannot get on side with each other. And I knew that that would be her. I mean, obviously, a lot of men didn't vote for her, but I knew there would be a a disheartening number of women who wouldn't get behind her for no reason other than what we were talking about. Well, the accusation, the accusation, wasn't it? It was all, it was just crooked, Hillary, the emails. No one, you know, no one cared about what actually happened. Mm -hmm. It's extraordinary. And so much of what you write about with women is we feel that we're here to prove many, many things to the world. There's There's a quote, a wonderful quote in the book that says, the less you need to be to the world, the more you can be to yourself. So conversely, we spend yeah. our whole lives trying to be something for other people to see. We sacrifice our relationship with ourselves. Yes. Don't we? Yes. So y- your book is, is asking for a reconnection individually as well as uh, a, you know, a rebuilding of community, isn't it? Yes. And it's this take back of this act of self-abandonment that so many of us are primed for. And this isn't to say that, of course, you're going to put other people's needs for some of the time. But it is this complete, it, 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 life is a give and take. It's an act of reciprocity. But for women, we have been giving a lot more than we've been taking, if we take it all. And so it's a rebalancing, a actually my needs, I need to understand what they are. That's the thing. So many of us, it's like they're just buried. So much of this is undiagnosed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not to belabor the envy chapter, but when I've talked to people about it, what's so this happened with my editor, this happened with friends where they'd be like, oh, I don't feel that. I don't have that. I don't really know what you're talking about. And I would say, okay, interesting. Um, This is how, you know, I think it presents. Think about the women. (laughs) You know, this was a friend of mine. We were sitting and her older mom was like, oh, yeah, girl, you're I'm so past that. And the next day, you know, I was like, think about the women who bother you. And I woke up, I was at a a meeting and I was like, holy shit, I have 27 texts. (laughs) (laughs) And it was my friend who was like, this person, this person, it was all these creatively expressed women with brands that, and she's never been able to do that for herself. And she was like, and I, this person drives me effing crazy. And I was like, okay, there you go. You found it. You found it. Now use it. But it was funny, this sort of like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then this barrage, just like an eruption once you actually identify it. I mean, I feel like every chapter in your book could come before an eruption. 
whether yes. that would be, you know, physical hunger, you know, yeah. your your chapter on, on, on gluttony and, you know, and, you know, we've talked about this before, but, you know, I thought it was interesting that we equate thinness with obedience, with, you know, yes. with, with being a person who cares about acceptance and desirability and discipline, but also just this, this, this acceptance that we should be making ourselves smaller in the smaller. world. Smaller. Yes. yes. And even when we go, oh, no, I reject that idea. I know it's still very hard for us to go or not to go. I still want to make myself smaller. Yes. And what's so interesting about the question of gluttony, which is really sad because food, pleasure, it's one of the main ways that we contact the world and the way that we police ourselves around what we eat and the size of our bodies is such a waste of energy and the conversation, you know, I was good today. I was bad today. Like the moral thematics of it are so insistent and strong. And then this idea, of course, of like women should be small, diminutive, men should be large and strong. Again, this is culture. You know, I was talking to, actually, she's one of yours, Angela Saini, who's a science journalist, and she had this book come out called The Patriarchs, and she's written about race-based science and the science about women. And She's brilliant. And she, you know, we were talking about this concept and she was like, this is the thing about anthropology, archaeology, science. You'll never know. We'll never know what is nature and what is culture because culture drives nature. And to that end, she was talking about Katalhuyuk, which is a, you know, ancient site in modern day Turkey. And they've done all this excavation and, and work and particularly in the last few years, using updated science. And men and women were the same size. They had the same diet. So men weren't being, in some sort of cultures, you'll see that men received the lion's share of calories or better better food. But in this particular settlement, the same. They had the same amount of soot in their lungs, suggesting that they spent the same amount of time inside tending kitchen fires. And so there are these examples of affiliative, egalitarian style living. And you start to see this difference, the dominance-based patriarchy emerge where we start sort of, it starts to inform our nature and our Mm. DNA, you know, Mm. where men, you see how we start selecting for these qualities that weren't necessarily who we were as first people. So I don't know, gluttony, it's like, Watching, and the Hezo Vizempic made it to the UK. Mm, yeah, it's yeah. huge here at the moment. Yeah, and watching people, and men too, just completely deaden their appetites. It's like, really? Are we here to die or are we here to live? And Well, what about those statistics in the book? Uh, something like, I mean, some a huge percentage of women who said they would rather shave 10 years yes. off their life. yes. Yes. Than, than be fat. That yes. they would rather have cancer. They would rather get divorced. They would rather, I mean, you know, they would rather almost anything be yeah. alcoholic. 14% it was, wasn't it? Alcoholism, I remember. Yeah. Would rather be alcoholic than put on weight. Yes. It is perceived here at least as maybe the worst sin. And as you were saying earlier, a sign that you have no self-control, yeah. that you're lazy, slothful that you don't love yourself, um, almost the opposite, right, of yeah. the reality of restricting yourself. And and the science 
continues. It's starting to percolate in the mainstream, but nobody really wants to hear it. But the science around obesity, which, yes, is picking up pace, is that scientists have no idea what's happening. It's a confluence of factors, but we are eating less and moving more, and it doesn't have an impact. And Mm -hmm. so it is environmental factors. It's our food supply, et cetera. But at the end of the day, they don't really know, but it's not personal choice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those things are likely as well to have sort of capitalistic influences, right? It's what Because it will be, well, if we lived in a world that was unpolluted, where food wasn't processed or whatever it is, which would, you know, dismantle certain structures, which would mean, yeah. and it, but, it, but you, you know, you need to keep them going. So it's a sort of push and pull constantly of, of like, well, you mustn't be that. But at the same time, we need to support constantly keep the economies and the structures going. It's absolutely yes. terrifying. I mean, I have to say your book is one of those books where you start off underlining. So you go, oh, yeah, that's very good. And then by the end, you're like, I'm going to underline the whole fucking book. If I keep going, I'm just going to stop now. I'm like, throw the pencil away and just focus on uh, trying just not to be furious and, and, and put it, you know, or use the rage in a kind of positive sense. Well, I- yes, anger. I mean, you know, yeah. or sadness. You'd written about it. And I think and we all feel this way that a woman, you know, who says that she never cries because she conv- yes. she's convinced that if she starts, she'll never stop. You know, yeah. we worry that if we start screaming, we'll never stop. If we start being angry, allowing ourselves to be as angry as we feel, that yeah. might just be a bottomless pit of rage. Yeah, and we're like, yeah. and, and also, you know, not being able to change, feel like we can do anything about it. So therefore, yeah. sort of raging into a void is absolutely terrifying. Because Emily and I were saying um, just before just before we started recording, I mean, the patriarchy is not going quietly, is it? <laughs> no. I mean, you would have thought, Jesus. I mean, it's taking, you know. It's taking longer to dismantle than it took to construct. Yeah. It's important. You know, the patriarchy feels sort of like a boogeyman in our minds. Like, what is it, right? And it's just a system. The problem is that the people who have benefited from it, who are typically white men, straight men, it's imagining a different future, letting that power go. You know, and I write about how women are are primed or acculturated for goodness. Men are primed and acculturated for power. Letting that go feels terrifying, right? At the end of the day, it is patriarchy is an attempt to control the uncontrollable and to keep chaos at bay. And so the idea of letting it go so that we could build something more equitable and balanced feels like death. Hmm. to the people who control it. It is Hmm. just inconceivable to imagine a different way. And so part of this is building a movement where it's not, I don't want to say graceful, but this isn't going to be sort of a let's burn it down and build something entirely new. These are going to be acts of reformation and rebalancing. And part of that is changing who leads our power structures, although I'm wary of that too, because there's an instinct, particularly in the States, of just like, oh, more women in sort of our capitalist market will change the world. And maybe there should definitely needs to be equity, but it's like you hear a lot about people talking about like, oh, I want, you know, it should be a matriarchy. It's like, well, that's still a dominance-based, oppressive, hierarchical spin. No, we want affiliative government. We want things that are balanced. We want men. I think the the big call to men here is let your feminine come up 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I write a lot about the masculine and the feminine. The masculine, these are energetic qualities, not gendered ideas. So the, the masculine, when it's balanced, is order, structure, truth. The feminine, when balanced, is nurturance, care, creativity. And we, as humans, regardless of how we identify sexually, regardless of how we identify in terms of our gender, have these qualities, all of them. And what we're, we're living in is that all of these feminine qualities are being assigned to women as our nature, and the masculine qualities are being assigned to men as their nature. And that is living at half-mast, and the feminine needs to come up. It needs to come up for men. And it needs to be countered in women by a full expression of our masculine. Yeah. Mm. But, you know, I think that women feel so cautious, as you say, about feelings that they have been educated to believe are unacceptable. And I think the idea of a woman being masculine, it isn't necessarily one of the deadly sins. It might not be, you know, greed or lust or Mm. or anger or, you know, gluttony or sloth. But it does you know, suddenly when we were growing up, it was like, you know, apart from be a good girl, it was, you know, don't be butch, don't be pushy, don't be, you know, and and the way that all these things get flipped for us, whereas a man is assertive, a woman is a nag or, you know, so, you know, so again, it's about these expectations that are woven through the fabric of us. Yes, a thousand percent. And that's where the movement comes in, because Mm. the more that we allow each other to tell the truth about our lives and to exist fully in the world, the more that things will change. And so this shows up, yes, women are, you know, ambition is a bad word for women, right? And one of the things that drives me nuts in corporate culture is this admonishment to women to be more confident. And I feel incredibly confident and confident in my competence. And most of the women I know, yes, of course, there's always imposter syndrome, but for the most part, The women I know are incredibly confident and competent, but we have been, you know, told like, be more confident, argue for your value. And that is BS advice in this world, because that is, as you were saying, perceived as being a terrible quality. Yeah. And so we learn to not express it. We learn how to caveat it. We learn it's not a function of not being confident. It's a function of not letting the world know that we're confident. Mm. And so we're doing sort of this double duty. But the more, and this, the problem in, in corporate culture is the social science suggests that women are just as hard on other women as men are hard on women. And so mm. the more onside women can get with other women, the more we can stop ourselves and diagnose what's happening Yeah, and then say, okay, I see. I'm feeling a little threatened that this woman is telling me her value and what she wants to be paid. Let me just calm myself down and then figure out how to support her. The more we can do that, the more it changes. And you see this in conversations. You see this with Me Too. You see this with women talking about their abortions and in America. You start to change the norms. We certainly mm. see it in the opposite way, in the way norms, terrible norms can be mainstreamed. But until women release ourselves from this constant surveillance Mm. and start being honest Mm -hmm. and supporting each other in our honesty, 
then we aren't going to see the change that we want. But I do think it could change quite quickly. It sounds ridiculous as women in their 40s, but sometimes, you you know, I you know there, there is still a sense of asking for permission, isn't mm. there? Mm. Just to be. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Not to do. We all know you, you, you make this distinction, the being and the doing thing. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, particularly, I'm sure for you, for all the women I know, we're so consumed with the doing in our lives. And so much of this is real doing that we have to do and in service to our families and, and ourselves and what I observe in the world, at least particularly in America as a, a mom who also works outside of the home, although I now work in my home, but I, <laughs> it's very confusing, but, um, but this ratcheting up, right, of effort, both in and out, and these feelings of complete insufficiency and inadequacy in all spheres of our lives. We'll never do enough. We'll never, therefore, be enough. And all that doing creates a tremendous amount of work and busyness, which I think is one of the reasons that the patriarchy still has its in its thrall. It's We're so busy. It's an, a type of addiction or numbing that we don't even know how to be, right? Mm. I struggle to sit still. I struggle to allow myself time to watch a movie from beginning to end without doing a million other things. I'm not alone here. But a big part of it is to stop and to let ourselves be brings up a lot. And yeah. it's much easier to just keep moving and doing rather than turning to face that. But that's what's required also mm. is to just stop mm. and start to process what's happening and to get back in touch with ourselves. And that's where you can get hit some quite mystical shit to do with the divine feminine <laughs> and the knowing <laughs> and, you know, the, the idea of the fertile void and, you know, yes. all that stuff that I rather I, love. I really like it. I, I, really... I, I heard the other day that if you wake up at four in the morning every day, um, it means the divine feminine's trying to tell you something. Wow, there you go. I'm not well, surprised. I mean, she's been well, trying to get hold of you for a while. She's been trying to get hold of me for about six years. You are literally like, I'm not, I'm not open for business, but you should be. I know that. Well, at four o'clock tomorrow morning, I will light a fucking candle and say, "All right, come on, sister, give an invitation, and you will get a visit." I have been visited many times. Yep, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm a believer. <laughs> I think it's really interesting. Every single, but I think there must be some really subtle messaging coming from the universe this year because nearly every podcast that we've done this year has told us, us in some version, which is stop, rest, listen. I think that it's a sign. That we yeah. should stop, rest, listen? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Next week we'll stop rest and listen. Okay. No, well, I, it's no. scary because then you have to change. Yes. No. Exactly. But the thing about the divine feminine and the messages and the knowing is is that I I believe in all that stuff. I think it's got huge power and wisdom and resonance. But I just sort of I'm so busy that I forget. Yeah. It's exactly what you're saying. Yes. I f I forget to say yes. Come in. Tell me. Yeah. We're yeah. like drugged. We're like anesthetized by our numbed by our busyness. Exactly like you said. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes sometimes it's what we know. I think it's always stuff that we know. If you've ever had sort of a reading or, an, an, you know, an intuitive encounter, whether it's with a tarot person or an astrologer, the reality is the good ones are telling you everything that you already know, mm. right? 
There's never, I've never had a reading and been surprised. I've been touched because of the way that I felt completely seen and contextualized, but I have never heard anything that has surprised me. And it can also, in that way, be really difficult because when someone is reflecting back the truth of who you are and you maybe have been ignoring it or avoiding it or silencing it, then it's extra pressure to act, Mm. right? Mm. And many of us are going to get messages like, you cannot be in this relationship. You cannot be in this job. You have to deal with all of this other stuff that's present in your life. And change is hard. Sometimes it requires relationship loss or fear. You know, a lot of the anger chapter is about the way that we suppress our anger and what is essentially an expression of our needs or how we feel violated or trespassed. And we suppress it because, one, it's reviled in women and always, you know, since it's as old as story. But also, we fear relationship loss. We fear with our partners if we start saying, no, unacceptable. Mm. Like, do not tread on me. I am not here to sort of be your servant. That they'll say, okay, no problem. I'll find someone else. I'll find another one. Yeah. And that's real for a lot of people. We don't know. Stepping into that unknown is terrifying. It is the birth canal. You know, Mm. it is a void. But it will become louder and louder and louder and more insistent. It's not going away, as we know. Mm. It will make us feel like you, like you're going to spin off the planet. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm now obviously convinced that my dizziness is some unexpressed sort of, is some kind of, you know, angel whizzing me around going, time to look at what's going yeah, on. Well, let's, let's just book a quick rebirthing or something. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you're dissociating in, in like a very extreme way, right? Okay. So, so it's like, what's going to get you back in your body? Yeah. Oh, maybe a good scream. Yes, maybe. Yeah. But like you, Elisa, I'm worried that if I start screaming, I won't stop. Well, you won't stop. <laughs> you'll, have, no. you'll, have, you'll have me calling you in three hours going, she's still screaming. What do we do? What do we do? Well, what's really, what's, what I will say is that, and, at least in my experience, as I've, in writing this book, gotten more in touch with my anger and like peeling those onions, then the grief comes. Yeah. And I think that they're often paired, but it's like the anger is keeping you on your frozen lake of grief and there's sadness there because you're screaming and howling (laughs) yes thanks this is what you see this is the message that's coming thanks elise anyway i really recommend her (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) on that note we really recommend your book yes on our best behavior it's a party it's a party (laughs) it is it's a party and you and listeners you are all invited on our best behavior what happens when we stop trying to be good and I say, let's all find out. Yeah. Bring it on. Thank and you do so it with much. your friends. Do it the way you guys are doing. Thank you so much. So much for coming to see us. Honestly, I've got a massive crush now. Have you? Yeah, yeah, me too. Really. Yes. Let's yeah. do this again. This was fun. I was yes. I- hoping you'd say that. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Annabelle Rivkin and Emily McMeekin of The Middle. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. Hi. 
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.